Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The COVID pandemic has taught us a lot about public health, but there's also been plenty of lessons about economics. After all, economics is the study of maximizing well-being in the face of trade-offs. So economists had much to contribute to debates about lockdowns, global trade, or FDA regulations. And now, by thinking critically about the past 18 months, the rest of us can learn a lot about the discipline of economics. That's the argument made by my guest today, Ryan Bourne, in his new book, Economics in One Lesson, An Introduction to Economic Reasoning Through COVID-19. Ryan is the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. Previously, he was the head of public policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs and the head of economic research at the Center for Policy Studies. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Jim. The book is meant to introduce people to economics by applying it to the pandemic. So for starters, what do you think most people commonly misunderstand about economics? Based on my Twitter experience, quite a bit, but what's been your experience? Well, I think the big picture mistake that people make, and this is not helped by the way that econ- you know, economics is portrayed in the media, is that they think economics is primarily about finance or about the, just the macro economy, you know, GDP forecasts, unemployment trends and the like. So the reason I wrote this book really was just to, um, you know, exemplify the fact that economics at its most basic is the um, evaluation and analysis of human action, human behavior in a world of constraints. And as a result of, you know, a pervasively disruptive um, event, shock to the system like a pandemic, um, all of us, both at an individual level and the level of governments, have been having to make a lot of uh, new consequential decisions about our lives. And um, those decisions are best understood through the framework of economics. And that provides a framework thinking about uh, the trade-offs of different decisions, um, thinking about um, kind of the dynamic and static implications of, of different choices, and thinking about how people's behaviors change um, when when a different policy or mandate is applied. And um, so I started this as a kind of uh, 10 essays, a thousand words each. And as the pandemic went on, there were just more and more examples that I thought really exemplified key economic lessons. How do you think economists view the world versus, say, epidemiologists? Uh, and who do you think did a better job of sort of thinking about this pandemic and the trade-offs? I think economists by and large have had a reasonably good pandemic. I think a lot of economists who understood um, economic growth and understood how quickly uh, something can spread when you have an exponential um, trend uh, were able to identify quite quickly that um, the kind of static trade-offs a lot of people identify between um, public health and economic activity measured by GDP, market activity, that that wasn't the key thing to uh, consider. I think where um, economists and good economists um, have probably done better than uh, certain epidemiologists is that economists tend to think on the margin. They tend to think of the um, additional impact of any given decision 
as opposed to just the kind of average impact of a whole bundle of things applied together. So I think a good economist would look at something like lockdown, for example, as a, a bundle of different implicit and explicit regulations and try and think about uh, which ones brought benefits exceeding costs and which ones brought uh, costs exceeding benefits as a, as a means of trying to kind of refine those lockdowns into something that's better for society overall. I think epidemiologists, um, you know, they're obviously very learned in their approach to to, to modeling and thinking about disease transmission. But when it comes to the application of policy, they tend to think much more crudely about uh, bundles of interventions, you know, the, um, stay at home orders, um, uh, non-essential business closures and the like. And they kind of miss that refined analysis that you get from thinking on the margin. Uh, I mean, a couple of criticisms aimed at economists um, during this pandemic, I think one especially when we were, especially when people were really worried about shortages of protective, protective equipment, they said, ah, look, look what the economists and their great love of globalization ha have given us. We can't make anything in this country. So now we have to you know, wait for other countries to, uh, to make our, um, to make our masks and gloves and things like that. Thanks a lot, economists. And the other sort of thanks a lot economists we got was uh, you're, Listen, you just you guys, as you said early, you guys just care about uh, GDP growth. Uh, you you know you know we need to turn this economy off, and you guys keep telling us about trade offs. You you don't value human life. Yeah, well, they're certainly the accusations that we get. I think they're both misguided. I mean, on the on the first aspect, of course, um, the prosperity that comes about from uh, trade and efficiency and specialization has facilitated huge relief efforts um, through this pandemic. We're a lot wealthier than we otherwise would be. And so you're able to do more in the way of relief. And of course, the technologies that have resulted from having an innovative, dynamic economy have made this this past year much more, uh, more bearable. Um, the difficulty when you kind of think about um, any trade-off between efficiency and resilience is the way a lot of people like framing it, Marco Rubio and, and the like. The difficulty in thinking about that is that it's very um, easy to retrospectively think, aha, we'd have been much more resilient to this particular shock if we'd had uh, a whole host of domestic production of certain medicines, face masks, ventilators and the like. Um, the problem is catastrophes like this um, are extremely uncertain in the form that they're going to take. Um, they don't come around particularly often. And when they do, uh, the contours of them are often uh, very different. So if we really knew what the next crisis was going to look like, um, then rather than repatriating a whole bunch of manufacturing capacity, it might actually just be cheaper to uh, massively stockpile goods, to take out options, to pay companies to you know, set aside some spare capacity in case we needed it in future, or indeed to broaden our uh, free trade horizons with more trade deals to try and diversify the potential supply of products. Of course, the big problem is we don't know um, what the next crisis is going to be and how it's going to hit. Um, and as a result of that, if you take this resilience argument to its logical conclusions, one would have to invest in a whole host of different capacities to, to cover every eventuality uh, that would be extremely costly. Um, and with, you know, not just costly in terms of uh, the, the kind of government spending implications, but costly in terms of undermining economic uh, efficiency. So I just don't accept on that first point that there's as clear a trade-off as um, 
as those people imply. I mean, your second point about GDP, um, I think some economists do fall into um, the trap of talking about measured market activity as if that's the kind of sum of human welfare. And clearly, in this pandemic, that would lead you to extremely faulty conclusions. Uh, when this crisis hit, um, all of us reassessed uh, our, our lives and the choices that we made day to day, how often we'd see family members, uh, how we'd go about working in consultation with the businesses or organizations we work for. Um, and clearly we did that because we thought in the context of the pandemic, our welfare was actually enhanced by um, by by deciding to dramatically change our lifestyles. And if you just looked at GDP alone, you might have presumed that these things were um, dreadful decisions to have made because we've become poor as a society. But we made those decisions uh, in the knowledge that the virus was out there. And as a result, you have to think very carefully about um, the distinction between GDP, uh, which over the long term tends to proxy reasonably well for welfare, but um, our kind of welfare in this very specific, um, difficult and unusual circumstance. And as for this resilience versus efficiency argument, I don't, I guess I don't understand why it was sort of a uh, failure of, you know, of economics and globalization or market economics that we didn't have enough N95 masks to, to send a box of them to every American uh, when there have been countless studies in the 2000s about the risk of some sort of you know, dangerous <laughs> airborne virus. I don't see why it isn't a a, a real failure of government not to stockpile and an endless mountain of N95 masks, when you could probably guess, well, that is certainly since we had experience not only with been a million studies, but we've had real examples uh, of, of, a, of, a, of, of a virus, not as deadly, but virus outbreaks. How is this? I, I just don't see how this is a failure of market economics or, you know, versus just a, just a failure of government to prepare properly for an obvious problem. They can't prepare for all problems. They can't prepare for the unknown unknowns, but it seems like this is something they could have done a better job preparing for. Well, certainly infectious disease control is supposed to be a core function of government. And as you say, there's been a host of different failures during this pandemic that have cost more in terms of lives, liberties, and lost economic um, activity as a result. I think that political economy can actually explain a lot here. Um, politicians just through the virtue of trying to become elected um you know the, the electoral cent incentives point away from preparing for low risk um uh, well kind of low probability high risk events um quite often if you engage in preparation for a pandemic um electors don't observe it um even if uh, even if you know the pandemic does hit and you, and the country rides it out relatively well um, it's quite often a previous um, politician who might have made the investment 20 years ago who would deserve the credit, and of course they wouldn't get the credit. So all of the incentives kind of push away from preparing for these types of events as opposed to, of course, the alternative, which is spending on day-to-day -day, um, government programs and, and transfers. So, I, you know, I think there's uh, electoral incentives that that, kind of push against this this preparation 
Um, but of course, even when this pandemic did hit, rather than allowing markets to kind of adjust quite quickly uh, to providing face masks for all of us, politicians and public health officials did um, two things. First of all, a lot of them triggered um, anti-price gouging regulations, which um, in effect cap prices in, in, in many areas and so deter um, a supply response because it's less profitable for any given company to provide face masks given the, the cap on prices. So you get sustained shortages. And of course, public health officials like um, Anthony Fauci went out of their way um, in part because they believed that this thing didn't um, transmit asymptomatically, but also because they, they thought of markets in a very kind of static sense and thought that us demanding masks would use them up for healthcare workers and so told us to, to, to refrain from going out and buying them. Now, of course, in the really, really static sense, me using a face mask today means it's not available for use within a healthcare or nursing home setting. Um, but of course, markets are dynamic. They respond to changes in demand. Um, and if we'd have encouraged people to wear masks sooner, we'd have seen um, factories and the like, um, other businesses repurposing their, their factories and, and manufacturing plants to try and meet that demand. So um, I, I think to kind of summarize your, the question you asked again, I think political economy provides a much um, better, more robust explanation for why politicians underprepare for this. But even when crises do hit, they tend to do things fairly often that um, deter that kind of within market response that we see um, from entrepreneurs and businesses. Do you think we know yet, or is this a, is this a subject we're going to have to have a lot more research about whether the lockdowns, uh, given you know the health benefit versus the economic cost, were they the right thing to do? Is, do we do you think we have a good handle yet on that? My working kind of assumption at the moment, given the literature, is that lockdowns on the margin um, do. Uh, both have public health benefits and economic costs. But I think that they're overrated, both in terms of the, the costs by their critics and the benefits by their proponents. The really difficult um, assessment here is that in order to assess whether lockdowns were actually worth it, um, you have to define a counterfactual. And if you look around the world, even in countries where they didn't lock down, uh, they've tended to still experience waves of the virus, which suggests that when the virus becomes highly prevalent, um, people's behavior changes uh, pretty dramatically. Um, and as a result, you see kind of infections and then deaths falling. So they don't kind of reach herd immunity um, in one swoop. And so um, in assessing whether lockdowns actually operated, you have to compare it to what you'd have expected to happen uh, if the lockdown wasn't there. And the problem is there's kind of um, a relationship between the two, of course, because if you do start locking down, then people might expect that in future, whenever things get pretty bad, you would lock down again. And the absence of any future lockdown might make them overly confident about going about their, their business. So first of all, defining the counterfactual is really hard. Um, secondly, in assessing these um, in assessing these policies, I think too few people have looked at the uh, or tried to measure the the costs associated with the restrictions of of liberties 
that perhaps don't show in GDP. You know, if you miss your grandparents' funeral as a result of some regulatory restriction, um, that wouldn't show up in GDP, but obviously it has a huge welfare cost to you as an individual. Um, so I haven't seen any comprehensive assessments yet that I think take this more holistic look at the impacts of lockdowns. My instinct is that they, on the margin, do have both additional costs and benefits to what we would have seen had they not happened. Um, and I also think in certain countries and in, uh, in, at certain times, they were clearly appropriate. You know, in December in the UK, where I'm from, for example, this thing was with this variant was just completely out of control and seemed you know robust to the near lockdown like measures that were in place already so they had to really tighten what they were doing at other times i've perceived lockdowns though as a kind of sign of failure a failure that um, through the summer months last year we didn't use the relative lull in most of the country to actually institute policies and frameworks and um, rapid testing and contact tracing that could have enabled us to try and mitigate this at a much lower economic cost than the lockdowns entail. I suppose you've almost written a book, Economics and One Vaccine. Just the whole process of, uh, of getting a vaccine out, which seemed to uh, have uh, you know, arrived a lot faster than uh, many of us expected. So what did we learn about many, whether it's you know, regulation or innovation through what I think as it looks, seems like a big success getting the vaccine uh, out, of the, out of the labs and into our arms. Well, I did think it was a big success, but I've just read Neil Ferguson's uh, book, Doom, and I was completely unaware of the fact that we actually got a vaccine for the 1957 flu much quicker than we did at this time. It was much lower efficacy. Uh, but I think it is, a, it is a triumph given the regulatory environment these days and how long comparable vaccines have taken in the past. I think clearly in this instance, politicians um, and the FDA, their hand was forced by the fact that um, this pandemic was extremely costly, not just in terms of the lost GDP and, and the value of lost lives, but as I've said, in the value of people's lost liberties. I, I remember the Trump Council of Economic Advisors calculating at one time that just looking at the GDP costs and the, um, the losses of life alone, it was probably at 15 to $20 billion per week this pandemic was costing. So clearly anything that on the margin could have brought forward the end of this pandemic was going to have big, big um, economic benefits relative to the costs of any kind of advanced manufacturing orders for, for vaccines. So I think it was well worth doing. I think on the margin, things like Operation Warp Speed uh, clearly did speed this up by, um, by kind of covering some of the firms from the uh, manufacturing risk that they faced um, with a major project like this. Um, having said that, I think it's clear in retrospect, there's probably things that we could have done to have sped this up even more. Um, human challenge trials, I know Alex Tabarrok has written about these um, extensively, seem to me to be a relative no-brainer. Um, what are those? Um, human challenge trials uh, is where you run a vaccine trial by in effect, deliberately infecting uh, young and healthy volunteers in return for payment. So they agree to take part in a, in a trial. Uh, they receive a reward for doing so. And then you, in essence, run a vaccine trial with, um, with your control and treatment group extremely quickly because you're assessing these people under controlled um, 
conditions in some sort of medical facility. Mm -hmm. um, and if we'd have done that, I think possibly we could have advanced this by a month, a couple of months. And um, as I say, given the, the huge economic costs of this ongoing pandemic, if you could um, accelerate this by even a couple of months, um, that brings with it huge economic welfare gains. So I think, I, you know, my glass is half full on this. Um, clearly, this is a, a relative triumph. Um, having said that, I, you know, I think when the retrospectives are written, we'll realize there probably are things that we could have done to, fur to, to further speed things up, not just on the, the vaccine trial side, but also in terms of, you know, using various economic incentives um, to try and speed up the manufacturing and rollout process. So, so do you think overall what happened was that if you want to call the whole the vaccine bit a success, it's because our regulatory agencies work the way they were supposed to work? Or is it because the regulatory agencies realize that the status doing what it said in the book wasn't going to quite work and they adapted it somehow? Yeah, I think in certain um, scenarios, the kind of FDA has um, has adapted to this pandemic, but in other ways, of course, it hasn't. The you know the the frameworks in place in for for rapid testing, uh, for example, held things up for a few months because they were still judging tests according to ordinary medical um, kind of diagnostic criterion, rather than seeing these as a thing that people could use at home to try and mitigate the risk of of taking the um, the, the virus to work. So I think it really depends on the issue that you're looking at. I don't think we saw a kind of pervasive change in, in attitude among um, the FDA as an institution. Uh, but clearly with the lead, I think, from the federal government in terms of Operation Warp Speed, people realized pretty early on that uh, suppressing this was going to be incredibly difficult in, in a country like the US. And so the focus all became on producing the vaccine and thank goodness it did it seems to me in these kinds of situations um and i'll say particularly this situation that economists will come up will think hard about trade-offs and incentives and they'll come up with ideas you know like like fairly recently hey we want people we want people to get vaccinated well we can pay people to get vaccinated we can or they're going to hold a lottery these kinds of kinds of ideas to encourage people you know through incentives it almost seems like there's some people there there are critics who just think they they don't like the idea of that. They don't naturally gravitate toward those sorts of solutions, which seem to be fairly straightforward, uh, seem like basic economics, but yet they don't seem to be embraced as readily as one might think. Is it is that your perception or it maybe it's just me? No, I think certain people, particularly in times of crisis, think the use of kind of financial incentives shouldn't be necessary and everybody should just do the right thing anyway um you know be um why know, should associate. why should a pharmaceutical company make any money why aren't they just you know why aren't they just giving this whole thing away exactly i mean it's that type of instinct i think that um that ultimately means we don't tend to experiment as much as probably we should do with these types of policies in these extreme scenarios um uh but, you know, what we have to think about is, um, again, we have to think about the marginal impact here. Yes, uh, for a lot of people, uh, myself included, you know, I got the vaccine fairly early on because um, I recognized that 
even though my own death risk from this was relatively low, um, I perhaps might need it for engaging in, in certain activities later on in the year. But also, you know, I, I did want to um, mitigate that risk of, of me spreading the virus to other people. And, and the overwhelming majority of people, I suspect, who have obtained their vaccine shots uh, did so with that in mind. But what you're trying to do with the incentives is really um, flip the people who are on the margins of those decisions. Um, indeed, one of the reasons, uh, as we as we know from uh, your your colleague Scott Gottlieb, uh, one of the kind of rationales for um, removing face mask mandates and kind of ad advising people that face masks won't be necessary once you've got the vaccine is that um, one would expect that for for people who really don't like uh, wearing face masks, who quite often tend to be the same sorts of people reluctant to to get the vaccines, you're providing a kind of implicit incentive. Uh, within that change of guidance, that there's something for them. Um, some, they'll get something out of um, uh, obtaining their dose, which is more freedom in terms of the ability to, to smile at strangers and, um, and breathe fresh, clean air. So these incentives do work on the margin. Um, it's kind of well trialed. I looked into this uh, for an op-ed that I was writing and there's a whole host of different um, things that are trialed around the world to encourage take up of flu vaccines uh, and um, various uh, kind of medical tests that are engaged with from, from with young women with, you know, giving gift cards and things. And almost all of them, they differ in magnitude, but the direction is kind of in the in the economic uh, direction that one would expect, given um, the financial incentive at play. So in the end, the end, what do you think will be the takeaways by most people from the pandemic? I, I think what I would like them to take away, and I, I would guess you too, that it's it's that it's pretty great to have a a, a well functioning market economy that generates lots of innovation and growth. It's a it's a dynamic con economy that can adjust to changing circumstances. That's what I hope people uh take out of it do you think that's what people will take out of it i hope so um i'm not sure that they will i mean already we're kind of getting stories about um whether various better performance in terms of death in east asian economies shows that we have tons to learn from them um, my own take on that is that a, a lot of those countries had experienced pandemic threats relatively recently in the form of SARS and MERS and were just much more on alert as a result. And indeed, South Korea, as an example, um, they, uh, they, they experienced a MERS threat in 2015. The government had a hell of a lot of criticism as a result of its handling of that crisis. And so they were, were ready with uh, things like contact tracing and the rapid rollout of testing quite quickly. I think there is a broader positive lesson for those of us of a kind of pro-innovation free market bent here though um, even though there have been a hell of a lot of uh, political mistakes and bungling um, through the last 14 months that have made life much worse than it needed to be um, two th big things stand out to me the first is the fact that as a result of our kind of dynamic um, innovative economy we have been able to ride this out much more 
relatively much more easily than we would have done, say, if this had hit 20 to 30 years ago. And that's a reflection both of the technologies that have been produced in this dynamic economy, but also the wealth that we have in terms of uh, being able to provide relief to people who needed it. Uh, but, but then secondly, those, those same creative tendencies have actually um, helped us in, in producing the high efficacy vaccines that will um, enable the end of this pandemic. And so while certain people can look at coercive society's ability to enforce lockdowns um, in the interim, I think, um, I think when you look at the bigger picture, the story is that over the past couple of decades, our increase in wealth and prosperity has actually made us more resilient as a society in terms of living with a shock like this. And actually those those same creative tendencies are what got ultimately got us out of it. My guest today has been Ryan Bourne. Please buy his new book, Economics in One Virus, an introduction to economic reasoning through COVID-19. Ryan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.